Welcome everyone to FF Plus, your outlet for weekly reviews that are simple, short, and spoiler-free. I'm your host, Aaron White. It's time to buckle up because this is a super packed episode. I've got three films to talk about and some new upcoming 4K disc Blu-ray releases that I also want to cover. So without further ado, let's jump right on in. First on our list is Escape from Kabul from HBO Documentary Films. It is directed by Jamie Roberts. What's it about? Featuring never-before-seen archival footage of the historic confrontation in Kabul that unfolds over 18 monumental days in August 2021, from the U.S. withdrawal of its troops from Afghanistan through the subsequent evacuation of tens of thousands of Afghan citizens from Kabul airport after the Taliban seized the city. If you were paying attention much to the news or social media about a year ago in August of 2021 when this all happened, I'm sure you're probably aware of some of the photos that went around of an absolutely overstuffed aircraft just packed full of Afghans trying to leave and of some of the challenges that they Americans had faced in the Kabul airport when it was overrun with citizens trying to get out of the country and the Taliban closing in behind them. I certainly was aware of this, but I was extremely interested when learning about this documentary's existence because I wanted to know as much as I could of how this operation ended up going so wrong. This is an absolutely riveting emotional documentary. It recounts the harrowing two and a half weeks in August 2021 when those U.S. Marines were evacuating the Afghan citizens. This was the final withdrawal of the 21-year war in Afghanistan, 20-year war in Afghanistan. Biden had set a deadline of August the 31st, 2021, for the U.S. and NATO forces to be completely done uh, with supporting this war. And so they were on a timeline and they were trying to get things done in a hurry. The story plays out as dramatically as any fictional movie. Uh, it's told thoroughly through interviews with operational commanders from the time, military forces on the ground at the time, numerous Afghan citizens who went through this event, and also Taliban combatants as well. And all of this lends to really an incredible range of perspectives to these incidents that occurred. The latter, speaking of the Taliban, specifically is particularly fascinating, and it's often infuriating, honestly, because often the Taliban members who are interviewed laugh or speak very casually about the tactics that they used in fighting American forces and in killing Afghans across the entirety of the war. At one point, one Taliban member, particularly this this one member who laughs all the time, is showing a handmade small projectile weapon that holds a single bullet and expressing how they would use this to sneakily murder and attack Americans and soldiers. And so it was hard to watch. I'm not going to lie. There's a, a bit of it that just is really enraging and it makes you a little upset, honestly, that they're just sitting there, just casually being interviewed. It made me 
very curious as to how we got these interviews with the Taliban as well. That is not outlined in the documentary. I don't know if these are folks who were captured and are in prison and then are giving these interviews or if the filmmakers were able to get them to just open up somehow and safely tell their side of the story. They're very honest. That's for sure. There is no love loss here from the Taliban and the Americans. It's tough. Uh, many of the Afghan citizens speak about not only the experience of the Kabul airport and the evacuations, but about their horrid life under Taliban control. They talk about the oppression of women. They talk about the killings. They, they talk about when they were trying to escape to the airport. One family in particular, or one person in particular, I guess, is re recounting the story of following behind a family, a, a mom and multiple children, when the Taliban were shooting at them as they were running away, trying to get to the Americans for safety and to the planes to get out of the country. And some of her children were shot dead. And she had to just grab the remaining children and keep running and leave them behind because otherwise they would end up dead as well. I mean, these are real stories told by actual people. And it's a very haunting situation. The documentary features a ton of archival footage, and I think it adds a lot to this experience. A large amount of it is actually on the ground from cell phone cameras, and it really immerses you in this chaotic, intense, dangerous, and altogether challenging situation that all of the parties faced at the airfield in Kabul. It was clearly a logistical and operational security nightmare. When the Americans got there, they were undermanned, they were under-equipped to deal with the onslaught of incoming refugees, and they ended up being forced into some really questionable decisions in order to make progress. Likewise, the refugees themselves had nowhere to go to be safe. They just wanted out of this horrible situation that they were in, living underneath the Taliban, who had retaken Kabul. And this resulted in an extremely difficult to manage situation that unfortunately, you know, contributed to many deaths and one really horrific suicide bomb. The suicide bomb is actually captured on a couple of different videos. One is a cell phone where you see it go off in the background, and then we see some drone footage of it happening in the aftermath. It is, I mean, it so completely thoroughly encompasses everything that happened. And I don't feel like the documentary pulls any punches. It's very unbiased because it's not trying to make America out to be a hero. We are interviewed. We are able to, we, I say the Americans are interviewed. The Marines are able to provide their explanation of what they witnessed and how things went down. But then we also get to hear it from these other angles, both an opposition force and those citizens that are stuck in the middle. And it's just really... Uh, it's incredible, honestly, that all, through all of this turmoil, 124,000 people were still able to be evacuated. It's the largest operation in U.S. history, but it's simultaneously bittersweet to remember so many that couldn't be saved. And in the end, it's just like the war itself. The final operation, despite having a measure of success, it, it's a mismanaged cluster. The film also is extremely brisk. It is about 80 minutes long, 
It moves quick. It has an energy and a propulsion to it. And it is thoroughly, utterly engaging, captivating. You are locked into this story from start to finish. I think that that you know, plays into the fact that we are on a set timeline. We know that it's only going to be about 18 days that's being covered here. And so I would highly, highly recommend this. The documentary will be on HBO and then streaming on HBO Max on September the 21st. I think it is fantastically put together. It is worth knowing what happened and just being able to understand this situation from all of these different people and and how it affected each of them. There's a lot of empathy to be gained, a lot of frustration to be had. And I think sometimes those are the best movies that can generate those sorts of feelings, those sorts of questions um, in our minds and for us to think about as we progress and as we form opinions on what future military operations the U.S. and NATO forces, et cetera, may be involved in and and how we approach handling of situations where we know that there are a people who are being oppressed by someone in their own country and whether or not we choose to go and help them and how we do those things. So yeah, definitely think that Escape from Kabul should be on everybody's watch list this fall, and I hope that you guys will check it out. Next is Don't Worry Darling from Warner Brothers Pictures. Stars Florence Pugh, Harry Styles, Olivia Wilde, Gemma Chan, Kiki Lane, Nick Kroll, and Chris Pine. It is directed by Olivia Wilde. It is written by Katie Silberman and based on a story by Carrie Van Dyke, Shane Van Dyke, and Silberman. What's it about? Alice and Jack Chambers are a young, happy couple in the 1950s living in the seemingly perfect company town of Victory, California, which has been created and paid for by the mysterious company for which Jack works. Curiosity about the nature of her husband's work on the secret Victory Project begins to consume Alice. Cracks then begin to form in their utopian life, as her investigation into the project raises tensions within the community. Now, if you have been online at all, (laughs) <laughs> or watch the news probably at all in the past month or so, you'll probably know that this production, this press tour has been marred with controversy and all sorts of drama. We have stars that aren't talking to the director. We have conflict between actors. We had a spitting incident that really wasn't a spitting incident, but the media blew up and made people think it was a spitting incident where Harry Styles supposedly spit on Chris Pine. We have the fact that the director, her marriage fell apart during the filming of this movie, and she ended up now in a relationship with one of the stars of the movie, Harry Styles, who isn't even an actor or wasn't an actor before this really he was he's a known for being a musical artist and so there's this question of what where he falls into this and and is he even on the same level performance wise there's like all sorts of like outward stuff going on about this movie there was casting drama regarding Shia LaBeouf and how he was part of this previously but then got fired and then Harry Styles took over which I mean, it just there's so much so You can go read that stuff. I don't even, I mean, I'm mentioning it because it happened, 
And I think it is distracting. And I want you to know that none of that is going to affect my opinion that I'm about to share with you on this film. It starts with this. Florence Pugh is a movie star. If you didn't know this, you should know this. She is incredible. And her performance in Don't Worry Darling carries the film. It is almost entirely told the story that is from her point of view. And she goes through this Hitchcockian psychological drama that requires a range of emotional and physical acting. And it is utterly captivating to watch her. She just is on another level than most performers today. She is a top tier actress. And even in a film that may not quite fully live up to her talent, she shines bright. She plays this housewife, Alice, and her escalating suspicions about what might actually be happening in this town. Tremendously effective. Uh, She is nonstop gaslit by not only her husband, but those around her. And it's pretty frustrating to watch and see. There's a lot of mystery, and I really enjoyed, for the most part, wondering how this was going to play out because it's set up as this 1950s style housing development that seems to be following in a similar path to a movie like The Stepford Wives. And I think that that's intentional, obviously, because it helps to set expectations for what we think might be the actual reality behind the mystery. And ultimately, once We begin to get clues towards what is happening. It's not really that bad. I I found the movie to be mostly enjoyable. The rest of the cast is pretty solid as well. I don't think Harry Styles is a complete disaster. I do think that he is overmatched because most of his scenes are with Florence Pugh and he just cannot achieve the level of acting that she does. And I think it makes him look almost worse uh, by comparison, just because the contrast is so large. (laughs) And there are a few moments where the cracks completely show in his lack of, I guess, training, his lack of experience. He is asked uh, during a few big scenes to have these outbursts. Uh, There are, there's anger, there's, just a ton of emotion that comes out of him during these moments. And I don't think he pulls it off very well. I think he feels like a caricature at that point. And it definitely detracts from the overall impact of those scenes and what I believe we should be feeling. Olivia Wilde is fine. I was a little annoyed because the movie opens up with a scene that she sort of takes the lead in. She gives herself, as the director, a a little bit of the spotlight here. And I was glad that she went and took a backseat most of the film to Florence Pugh, which she should. She's a supporting character. But it felt like the movie was throwing her in our face right away. And it was hard to separate that just from my knowledge of her being a very overbearing director. And I thought that her character was fine. I thought that she, her performance was maybe a little bit out of place and and probably would have been better served to have someone else in that role versus her. Chris Pine, I loved. I think 
He plays this cult leader with such a charisma. He's magnetic. I wanted more of him. He is smooth. He is calmly operating in this role of the community architect, and he's like their beloved lord, essentially. And he makes you believe that his influence would be hard to resist and tempting to follow. I would have loved a lot more from him. And that kind of ties into my biggest frustration with the movie, which is it goes on far too long. It is darn, I think, near two hours and 15 minutes, something around that. But it feels to me, once the reveal happens, once we are becoming aware of what is really going on in Victory, the movie just pushes fast forward and it starts to blaze to the ending. And then it kind of just stops. And there's so much interesting meat there to dive into with regards to details of the situation that I cannot tell you about because it would be spoiling things. I can't even use references because I feel like that would give away what is going on here. But basically, I found it to be pretty interesting. And I thought that Chris Pine's role in the community and the actual situation that is happening, that is creating this victory project, I really would have loved more information. I wish that the reveal could have happened like mid movie. And then we would have spent like half the movie trying to deal with it instead of just a quick, you know, acknowledgement of what was happening and then a race to quote the end of the movie and to safety. And I just, I just didn't think it was executed very well. Unfortunately, there was a lot of potential here. And unfortunately, it feel like it left me with too many unanswered questions and too much poking holes in the setup and just very unsatisfied by the convenience of the end result for our main character. So I don't think it's at all the dumpster fire that some people who follow the gossip and drama and the film's production and the press tour might have you believe. But I also don't think that this is anywhere near a remotely special or particularly worth defending movie more than what I have here. It is in theaters on September 23rd, and I give it a mild recommendation. I, I, uh, the production design is impeccable. I should have mentioned that. That's the other thing. From a set design, costuming, cinematography, the score, the soundtrack, all of that stuff is incredibly captivating. I loved it. I was really sucked into this world that they had created in this Victory California setting. So all of that, plus Florence Pugh's phenomenal performance, carries you through the movie to the point where I found it to be pretty enjoyable overall. It's just no, no, no going in, you very likely may come out feeling unsatisfied. And for some people, that's enough to say, I don't even want to deal with it. But for me, I did not regret having watched the movie. I just don't think it's something that I will watch again or have any need to talk about past this review, which I'm now done with. Last for this week's new releases, I want to talk a little bit about Andor from Disney. This series stars Diego Luna, Genevieve O'Reilly, Stellan Skarsgård, Adria Arjona, Denise Goh, Kyle Soler, and Fiona Shaw, and it is created by Tony Gilroy. What's it about? Beginning five years before the events of Rogue One, the series follows an ensemble cast of characters during the time that a rebel alliance is forming in opposition to the Galactic Empire. 
One of these characters is Cassian Andor, thief who becomes a revolutionary and eventually joins the rebellion. Little backstory on me and Star Wars. I have been out on Star Wars for a while now. I found The Rise of the Skywalker to be pretty disappointing. And while I have enjoyed, to some extent, episodes of the TV shows, I have not watched most of the series in full. I've not been compelled to keep going. And frankly, I am just over the Skywalker saga and pretty much everything revolving around it. I don't necessarily want more of that. And I have been frustrated because I needed something to feel fresh and new and unique. I love the Star Wars universe and I wanted basically new characters. I want new areas to explore. I don't want a bunch of cameos. I don't want a bunch of Easter eggs. I don't want a bunch of the same stuff that we've already seen. I had zero interest in Andor whatsoever. I like Rogue One. I didn't like it when I first saw it. I've watched about three times since my initial theater viewing, and it has grown on me with every viewing. And uh, Diego Luna's performance and his character of Cassian Andor is a big reason why. And so when I saw initial reviews of this go out, People were loving it and saying it was fresh. I saw some from some trusted colleagues and knew that it was probably something I needed to give a chance. And so I did. And here we are with me ready to absolutely praise the ever-loving crap out of this series. Honestly, I don't even want to talk too much about the plot. It's pretty simple. He's a thief. He kills some Imperials early on in the show, like very early on, who try to stop him. And much of the first run of episodes, I've seen four. The first arc is the first three episodes, I would say. And we've seen four total as critics out of 12. And the the first run is really about him gearing up to sell this tracking box that he has stolen from an Imperial base. And while he is being pursued, and while he is working to find a buyer... There is a fleshing out of the world at this period of time that is happening, as well as some flashbacks that show us his backstory as well. We see him as a child. We see his community. We see what happened to it. We see how he ends up kind of being this loner, how he becomes a thief, why that's what he gravitates toward, who's close to him who he has in his life. He has an adorable droid buddy because, hello, it's Star Wars and everybody has to have an adorable droid buddy. It's called B2 Emo, which I don't know if that's how you say it, but I love it. It's part salvage droid and part family dog, and he's super cute. I mean, have we ever not loved a Star Wars droid? I don't know about you, but I always like them. He has a little bit of a complex, I think, because he gets made fun of at times for his small frame and for his status. I think that plays into his decision-making, and the career that he essentially launches himself onto. He is a very cynical, revolution-averse person, and we start to see pretty early on just little nuggets of story details that and events that will eventually lead him to becoming the kind of passionate person who ultimately gives his own life to save the galaxy. 
in Rogue One. He is a natural leader. He knows how to manipulate. He has charisma. And he feels like such a great Tony Gilroy character. Now, Tony Gilroy is known for, should be known for writing the Bourne films. He's also written some awesome drama intrigue stuff like Michael Clayton. And this has the feel of a mixture of those type of things. He's He's got a spy quality to him, Cassian Andor does. But like I said, he's very early on established as a person who is a killer. He is being chased by a person named Cyril, who is an Imperial officer and a character that I think really feels like they need to impress their superiors because he wants to find a place for himself in the Empire. And his goal is ascending to the top of the food chain. And so he believes that, you know, tracking down this criminal, this thief and retrieving this box is going to achieve him the status that he's looking for. The character played by Stellan Skarsgård, Luthen Rael, he's a buyer that is at one point considered for the box. I don't want to say much more about him other than I love, love, love the casting. Stellan Skarsgård's always outstanding, but the specific role that he's playing here, I don't even want to tell you what he's doing, but I, I think he's great. <laughs> and I hope we get a lot more of him going forward. As far as the episode stories go, episode three is absolutely phenomenal. Things kind of build up to it, and it has just this intense ground level propulsion to it as it eventually gets to the point of an explosive confrontation. And there are big consequences and a turn for both the Imperials involved and the budding rebellion. I think that those first three episodes are really the perfect arc for Disney to release all at once, which is what they're doing to get people hooked into the show. And then the fourth episode starts to bring in some a little bit more wide-reaching elements and even some hints of a heist, which really excited me. I love the cinematography. I love the tone, the vibe, aesthetic, whatever you want to call it. It's very moody. It's very appealing for me. It's rich. There's not a lot of action here, but what we do get is realistic feeling and grounded. There's no lightsabers. There is no force. There aren't Jedi walking around. So it's it's incredibly grounded. There's no super heroics happening. Instead, Andor and characters, they have to use their intelligence and their quick thinking. And it's more about that than it is about the kind of weapons or powers that they're using. There's also some nuance to the imperialism that we see because it is in its infancy here. And we are walking through some of these events with low-level participants and not people who are the most mustache-twirly, obvious, evil villains that are running the Galactic Empire. So there's some gray here and some room for understanding, questioning, empathy even. I, I loved it. I finally feel like there is something in the Star Wars universe that is for me, that is unlike anything I've ever seen before. And I think 
by pulling back away from the Jedi concepts and and some of the other ways in which the stories just always have felt the same. This is a spy thriller. It is. It really has an, a political intrigue and spy thriller. That is what they are going for, and, and Tony Gilroy is achieving it so far. It has me so pumped and ready to see the next episode. I am already anxious for it. I'm craving it, and I, I will be right there on release day for the first time for Star Wars in a really long time because of that. Like I mentioned, the first three episodes will be streaming on Disney Plus on September the 21st, and then it will release weekly after that. All of the episodes in this first 12-episode season are, so far, between about 35 and 45 minutes each, and there is already a second 12-episode season in development. So the early reactions to this and Disney Brass's faith in it seem to both point towards this being something that they expect to be widely beloved, just as I am telling you right now that that's how I feel about it. And I I hope that anyone who is like me, who feels burned out on Star Wars, gives this a chance. And I think those of you who aren't burned out on Star Wars and who eat up every little detail Star Wars, I think you're going to love it too. It's going to bridge the gap, in my opinion. And that is just so wonderful for all of us. All right, last but not least, I have some new 4K Blu-ray. Okay, last but not least, I have some new 4K Blu-ray releases to quickly touch on. First one is Poltergeist. Really great film. Love the movie. If you haven't seen it, you need to. It's a fascinating new idea from Steven Spielberg, who is producing it with Toby Hooper directing. It's like this PG horror, but supernatural horror but also family drama and adventure movie it's really cool mashup that it took me way too long to see i saw it for the first time just a couple of years ago unfortunately i'm excited to get a chance to revisit it again the 4k hdr 10 video is awesome especially in the haunting sequences of which there are many the bright lights that flash there are epilepsy and seizure warnings that go along with this movie, by the way. Um, the whites, they are very pronounced and striking with this new transfer. Most of the movie takes place in this house, so it doesn't look vastly different than the Blu-ray, but I think that it's probably about as good as a film from this particular era can look with a 4K upgrade. I'm really, really satisfied with it. There's a new audio mix, 5.1 audio mix that is fantastic. The action and the hauntings are loud. The sound is crisp and it never drowns out the voices, which is really welcome. That tends to happen sometimes and can be frustrating because I can find myself like wanting big sound, but then having to like go up and down on the volume control because I can't hear the dialogue. That's not the case here. I never had an issue Big sound is one of my favorite parts of these upgraded discs like this, and this one just does not disappoint. There are a limited amount of special features. All of the special features have been previously released, so there's nothing new. The main thing here is a two-part documentary called They Are Here, The Real, Real World of Poltergeists. Uh, these are about two 15-minute episodes, the first of which deals mostly with the science of ghost hunting. These are interviews and background on that from people who are in that profession. 
and they are talking their way through the movie, using scenes in the movie as a way of showing how the film accurately represents the study and appearance of these phenomena. The second one is called Communing with the Dead and is a little more focused on people who believe they can see and or talk to ghosts versus the ones that are wanting to use science and technology to prove those things. They're both pretty cool companion pieces. They reuse a bits of interviews in each one. Not a lot, though. I think that they're a good introduction to further learn about the things that we saw depicted in the film. And honestly, at about 30 minutes total, they they don't wear out their welcome, even though they kind of feel a little bit dated. Then there is uh, The Making of Poltergeist, which is a seven-minute short doc. I loved this. <laughs> There's a limited amount of behind-the-scenes footage. There are some brief interviews with cast and production members, and then there is some commentary from Steven Spielberg at times. It just made me really wish that there was a feature-long making-of documentary on this because they had so much usage of practical effects and stunt work, and it would be great to learn how all of that happened in detail. We get to see bits and pieces of it in this seven minutes, but it just blows right by, and it just it just made me want more and left me incredibly longing. So uh, it's good, but that's the problem is like, it's not enough. This disc is available on 4k ultra HD disc and digital beginning on September the 20th. The next one is the lost boys. I absolutely love this movie. It is a cult classic. It's among many people's favorites of the time period or of the vampire movie genre. It certainly is one of my favorite vampire movies, which I really enjoy that genre quite a bit. This movie changed it pretty much forever. There was a certain way in which vampires were depicted prior to The Lost Boys, and then the stylish manner of this film sort of shifted that and ushered in a new way of looking at the vampire when it comes to film work. And I really do think that it is responsible for injecting a lot of life <laughs> and i guess that's a, a little bit of irony there and a new uh, energy into the way that we could experience stories about vampires like with poltergeist all of the special features have been previously released the disc itself features an outstanding picture it is better in every way the color really stands out especially neon signs, the red lights in the house, and the gory bits. But everything just looks so, so clear. The sound didn't stand out to me as demonstrably different like it did in Poltergeist, but the, the, the visuals are much better than they were in Poltergeist. It's great, though, overall, and I have no issues with it. I'm really, really pleased with this particular upgrade. This is a movie that I will be watching or re-watching many, many times, more than I will rewatch Poltergeist. So for me, I'm thrilled to get such a wonderful new 4K HDR10 visualization of this film. It just it looks so, so good. The special features, there is a commentary by Joel Schumacher. I didn't get a chance to watch it yet, but I am very anxious to get around to that. The key thing to note here is that it is both included on the 4K and the Blu-ray disc. That's not always the case. That's a big win. So we get to use the commentary while watching this new beautiful picture. The favorite special features for me were 
the following. The Lost Boys, a retrospective. This is a 24-minute little mini documentary. It includes pretty much everyone of note sharing their memories about the production. It's not super detailed. It's more of a broad strokes look with various perspectives, but I really, really enjoyed it. I thought for, you know, you take like the idea of like a seven minute making of for Poltergeist. This is a 24 minute version of that. So it's better because it's longer and it's more detailed. There is a 14 minute short called Vamping Out the Undead Creations of Greg Cannon. This is so good. He is the designer behind the way that they made the vampires look. It is Super thorough on all of the details. One really neat one being the use of contact lenses and how that was not really common in Hollywood at the time, but very, very important to the design that they came up with for the vampires. I thought that this was really insightful and interesting. And then the other favorite one is the return of Sam and the Frog Brothers multi-angle video commentary by Corey Haim, Corey Feldman, and Jameson Newlander. It's 18 minutes long. And what it is, is it's about six minutes of each of those different cast members giving commentary on a set group of scenes for the Frog Brothers. But they're not doing it together. They do it individually. And it was really interesting to see how they commented on the same scene, but without each other there to bounce off of, so that we got different perspectives on which ones were their favorite, what they liked about them, what they didn't like, what they thought about them, how they approached filming them. It's a really cool way to do this, something that I, I don't think I've seen done before. It might have been a first for me. Other special features include a set of shorts uh, called Inside the Vampire's Cave, all about the that. The va- <clears throat> uh, another short about Sam and the Frog Brothers. There are about 15 minutes of what's called the lost scenes, so deleted scenes, and then there is a music video to Lost in the Shadows. This 4K disc will also be available as well as on digital on September the 20th. Deep breath, last but not least, we have Batman the Long Halloween Deluxe Edition 4K. Our previous reviews for the story of the long Halloween are in FF plus episodes on June 23rd, 2021 for part one and July 29th, 2021 for part two. Originally, that's how this was released. This release puts them together and makes them one movie. In short, this is one of the best comic book stories ever in Batman history. And the depiction of it was a mixed bag for me. The mystery of this intelligent and twisted killer who straddles the line between gangster and traditional Batman villain and the suspense generated as Batman is continuing to not stop what is happening. Those things are well done. I'm not a huge fan of Jensen Ackles as the voice of Batman, though. I think that three hours is too long for this story and that it would have been better served as closer to a two hour long single feature. So I think that it gets a bit long in the tooth. And they changed the book ending, so some fans will probably be split on that. I think that they did a better job, personally. I like it, but I don't know that everyone will. I did enjoy it more watching all together at once, rather than in two separate parts, though. And I always thought it was insane that WB was asking $20 for each part separately on Blu-ray. 
it kind of sucks because this is the definitive edition to own for sure. And yet it has a list price of $55 for the 4K, even though right now it's on sale at most places for slightly under 40. And the Blu-ray Deluxe Edition is listed at $40 and it's on sale for 28. So I don't feel like we're getting much of a discount here by having them put together. And I really would have liked to see that because I think that they're overshooting this one with regards to value. When it comes to special features, there are a, a little bit of previous special features that were included on the individual Blu-rays that are not here. The animation, by the way, is already the best thing about this production. And so getting the 4K upgrade was a complete treat. It is done in a dark and gritty style that it fits the crime noir story perfectly. It's a fairly simple animation style that's really nostalgic and looks just gorgeous in this crisp 4K. I love the depth of contrast here between colors and blacks. I really enjoyed watching it for that reason. It just looks incredible. The one special feature of note is Batman the Long Halloween Evolution of Evil. This is a 25-minute short that explores the mystery surrounding the holiday killer. And it's a comprehensive look at the long Halloween with the original writer, Jeff Loeb, and the filmmakers discussing the story, its themes, and its history. And I found this to be really insightful and absolutely worth the watch. I, I highly recommend this for any fans of either the graphic novel story or the film version here on this disc. There's also a handful, I think four classic episodes of Batman, the animated series. These are the same ones that were included on the part one and part two Blu-ray releases earlier. Like the two previous films, Batman, the long Halloween deluxe edition will be available on 4k disc and digital on September the 20th. All right. Thank you all for sticking around. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope I have helped give you some information that helps aid in your decision-making on what you see, what you buy. If you're enjoying this, follow me on social media at Aaron L. White on pretty much all platforms. That's A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. You can find links to myself and the podcast in the show notes of every episode. If you are having a good time, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you listen. It does help us out and we are very appreciative of those. I'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling filled.